Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today to have Patrick Lindqvist, who is the Chief Innovation Advisor for the city of Helsingborg in Sweden. Patrick, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about being here. Excellent. We'll see whether or not that bears out in, in time uh, throughout the conversation. So, Patrick, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are and your journey to get to where you are? And I'd love you to explain a little bit more about uh, what your role entails, because you know, being head of innovation for a city, that, that must be fascinating. Well, it is. And the, uh, the road I took to get here was a long and windy one. I actually have a background in IT. I studied uh, computer and information science at university, but I also had a, got an MBA while I was there. But I did start off my career in IT and did a good 15 years in, in IT, even though, to be honest, uh, I never wrote a, a line of code or hardly even a, a specification. I was mostly you know, doing the glamorous project management and um, I was the kind of person who talked a lot but didn't actually get anything done uh, for, for a long while. And then you moved into government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? I feel at home. No, no. Uh, it's easy to joke about government, but um, we'll get back to that. You know, after my, my career in IT, I actually at one, at one point I got tired of all these huge, highly technological projects, you know, that involved implementing new systems that often are based on some kind of an understanding of how a process works or should work or has been benchmarked. But very little time is spent on, on actually getting the system to be adopted and used by the organization that it is intended for. And at one stage, I, I just got sick and tired of that. And I changed to work for a consultancy that used a pedagogical approach to create true change within uh, large organizations. And that was a big deal for me. And I had a lot of fun there and learned a lot. Um, and a lot of the stuff I learned, I then took with me when I became a manager. It actually took until I was 40 to become a manager, even though it was the only thing I dreamt of from being like 17. So I had a, a long, a long takeoff process there. And since then, I, I started off as a manager within uh, the consulting business. But then quite soon, I was involved in the local public transport company here in southern Sweden, which is called Skåne Trafiken. And we can catch up on pronunciation later on. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I was involved actually to do two things there. The one was to help sort of um, reorganize and, and uh, create a more professional IT organization internally, because it was an IT organization that had grown with the organization over more than 20 years. And, and uh, there was room for change and improvement, even though it was a, a largely a well-functioning department. And so that was one thing I had to do. The other challenge I was given was to aid in the digital transformation of the whole organization. Because my boss, the, the director, uh, had very insightfully realized that to be a part of, of the changing world, uh, you have to be as digital and as flexible as our customers. Even, even if transportation is about buses and trains and, and the like, the expectations and the experience of the people who travel is based on their digital experience. And it has to do with information and infotainment and pricing and how you pay and, and so on, right? So it was a really interesting trip. And that's actually what brought me into the, the realm of, of innovation and change and digital transformation. So a long, long intro for me there. So you're, feel free to ask any questions, Marcus. I'm really curious, how did the fact that you came from a, a very varied background because project management is almost never the same and the systems and structure may be the same but the uh, the context will vary and operating in a specialist field of innovating for a city how do you find that a uh, breadth of experience has helped you wow oh, that's an interesting question well Maybe I should finish the intro before we delve into that, because I was there for about five years helping uh, transform this um, public transport agency or, or company. And then I went to a bank where I was uh, supposed to be a part of a digital and an agile transformation. And that didn't really go quite as well as I'd hoped. Uh, there were some changes in management after quite a short time, and I, I left as a part of that restructuring. But I, I tend to say that I learned more in that one year than I learned in the five previous years, because it is often in, in the face of, of, you know, big challenges and um, failure that maybe one can, one can make the most 
of your learnings and your insights, right? Absolutely. And it was after that I came to the city of Helsingborg. And I think what brought me here was, uh, for one thing, my manager is a person I worked with uh, in one of my previous jobs. And we had together established a, an agile innovation laboratory uh, outside the uh, existing organization to try to work with new products, new solutions, an agile mindset. Actually, we built an organization at the time where we hired about 10 new people, people who had experience of working with innovation and agility. And the only explicit request we had that they, was that they had no experience of public transport. Very interesting. I'd love to delve into that a little bit more deeply. Have you read Safi Bakal's book, Loonshots? No, I haven't. I um, know that. Uh, Safi wrote this book about how uh, organizations start out being creative and entrepreneurial. And then as they grow, they become bureaucratic and conservative. And it was how you can protect uh, that innovation and creativity. He's agreed to come on my podcast later on in the year. He's wow. in the middle of writing another book. Yeah. But really fascinating. And so I have my views, but I'm, I suspect the audience is more interested in hearing yours. Why did you decide that you wanted someone it didn't have any experience of public transport. We see, at the time, we had, as I said, we had a, a sort of an IT organization that was uh, maintaining and partly developing a, a bunch of legacy systems. We wanted to achieve a more customer-centric solution, both when it came to how we, how we developed our products and what technology we used for those products. And we decided that one of the main problems or challenges that we needed to, to get ahead around was how we perceived the, the, um, what our customers wanted. And unfortunately, and, and as you said, organizations tend to start around something very exciting with a lot of energy. And then as time progresses, they become more focused on just maintaining what exists. And there's a certain logic in that. And, and especially when you invest in solutions or, or technical solutions or processes or organizations, you just maintain those. And the people working in business development and IT were very set in their views. And we, we thought that if we're going to start off on a new page, we need a blank page. And that includes getting people involved who do not have any whose only sort of previous experiences of public transport were as, as customers, not as providers. And that would maybe open up to a larger variety of ideas and insights. And hopefully, if, if you sort of use an incubator as, as, a, as an analogy, hopefully if, they, if we could give them room to think, immerse themselves in, in the complexities of public transport, they would create new ideas and thoughts and processes and, and tools that would be vastly different from the ones we'd had before. Very interesting. So tell me this, did you look at values at all into, and shared values of the, uh, the people that you were hiring? Yeah, that's a good question. I like working with values and, and a lot of strong organizations out there use values in their recruitment. I think we were definitely very interested in understanding whether or not they could adopt to a more agile mindset. And I mean, there are a set of values that, that you could say are reoccurring in, in a more agile mindset, you know, being a, a team player, being open to, I actually made some notes for myself, being prestigeless, looking for cooperation, exhibiting trust, prepared to be transparent in your work, you know, getting people involved, but also, you know, a sense of courage and understanding that when you when you come in as a sort of change agent into an organization that is very set in its, uh, in its ways of thinking, you have to expect that you will be challenged, right? Woodrow Wilson said it better than I think either of us could, which is if you want to make enemies, recommend change. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Actually, I was previous colleague quoted me on LinkedIn uh, just about a week ago. And I'd, oh, I'd forgotten about this, but apparently I said at some stage, maybe I was irritated or irate, I said, that when you come in as an agent of change, you quickly get surrounded by antibodies that do their best to stop whatever is changing, right? So I'm really curious about this. What sort of resistance did you face? How did it manifest itself? Oh, well, to begin with, the, um, the, my existing organization, the IT department, the IT, and, which, which sort of 
it wasn't just the IT systems. We were responsible for all the technology on all the trains and buses and ticketing machines, et cetera, et cetera. And that whole organization were, to begin with, very skeptical. And in fact, parts of management, my direct reports, uh, challenged me in front of, of, of a big audience, in front of the whole department, on how I could do something so naive as to employ people with no previous experience. <laughs> It actually came to the point where I had to defend myself because this discussion never ended. And, and finally, you know, on the question, what do you expect them to develop? And I said, well, something that is different from what we have today. <laughs> and then that, that sort of uh, created a bit of an awkward uh, um, moment there. But, um, but of course, I had to explain myself. I said, I mean, there are two perspectives to this. There's the one of the challenge of bringing a lot of new people on board at once, which can scare the incumbent. And then there's also the, the, the um, challenges that come from having a, a new strategy and, and wanting to test new things. So the issues that arose referring to the new colleagues, I said, listen, we're making a huge investment here. We've got a large sum of money that we're going to use to bring new people on board. And it's a little bit like you're playing for a local football team and there's a new owner and the owner says, we're going to play Champions League. So we're going to bring some new people on board, you know, new players, new management. And if you're in that team, you can either feel very threatened by it and leave or, or try to disrupt change, or you can think, okay, so what would my part be in this journey? And will I get better? And will I be a part of it? And what can I learn? And what can I do? So I tried to get sort of people to feel like even though this was challenging and would, would you know, result in a lot of change and new roles and different roles, try to get them to feel excited about being part of this change journey. You know, I was, I was quite young in my leadership at the time, and I realized I was probably quite naive, but I really meant well. And I've realized now that I have a tendency to enjoy change, whereas most people tend not to. And uh, I realize that it is very difficult to get everybody uh, on board, especially when they actually think that the status quo is quite good. So that was difficult. When it came to the, the challenges of our, of our strategy and our vision, it was more about getting everybody involved in identifying our customers as the most important party in the whole design process or in any process. Uh, and I mean, that took some time and work, but people did come around to that because what, actually, what we actually found in the dialogues was that there was this sort of general understanding within the organization that the products were good, the existing products. So what we had to do then was sort of work with what kind of data and what kind of insights do we have that are of, to the opposite? that show us that people actually aren't very happy with the existing products. And you can create change around that. Very interesting. So what, what are the four most common questions you've been asked about innovation within Helsingborg? Well, the first one, of course, is what is innovation? And the second one would be, why should the public sector be innovative? But to ask those, to answer those, we have to start with what we mean by innovation. Now, the, the city of Helsingborg has made a, an incredible stand They've earmarked 250 million Swedish kronor for innovation. And a little uh, more or less half of that is going to be used for a, a global sort of smart city expo in 2022, if corona allows us to get back to some kind of uh, public life again. And the other half is earmarked funds for the nine departments of the city to use for innovation. So, I mean, they're already there. You've made a big stand, right? The first question that arises then within these departments is, what are we allowed to use the money for? Because innovation can mean many things. So, and this also comes into the role I have, uh, actually together with my colleague, Lisa, to first help the, the, the leadership of the city and the departments to identify what do we mean by innovation? And we broke that down into three sort of very simple uh, messages. The first one is innovation is basically just doing things in a better way, doing you know, new solutions to needs that are better than previous solutions. So that's really, really simple, right? And it's easier to get everybody aligned around. But the difficult question comes in, how is that different from development? And this is where we, we build a def definition on this uh, difference because development usually is making something exist that already exists better. And usually that's quite an easy uh, decision to make. And usually there's, a quite an, there's an easy analysis to be made in terms of the business case. And it's easy to identify the return on investment because it's very similar to what you're already doing. So maybe you're, you're increasing the speed that you can manage a process. 
And it's easier to, to do the math and it's easier to figure out what it's going to give you. And it's easier to identify what the project entails so you can make a budget. And then you can work out your return on investment. And then, you know, you'd have to be crazy not to say go. Whereas what we're looking for in innovation is these big steps, the bold steps, the, the testing of things that have never been tested before. And those are very difficult to motivate from a traditional business perspective because it's very hard to, in advance, calculate, first of all, will it work or not? If it works, what will it give us? These are the unknowns. And they're unknowns for quite a long time during the process. So what the city of Helsingborg did by earmarking funds for innovation was saying it's okay to waste some money on things that we do not know whether or not they will be effective. If we do enough things, some of them will work out. And those will be so important to the future of the city that they will motivate the costs we and the money we spent on things that didn't work out. That requires quite courageous and management that's comfortable with risk and understands yes. the difference between risking and sacrificing. I think people often confuse the two. Risking mm -hmm. is going from lower to higher value with the possibility of losing some or all of what you've got. Sacrificing is going from higher to lower value and there's no upside. And where people are set in their ways, they see all risk as sacrifice. And in fact, there was a really interesting meta-study uh, that was carried out about 15, 18 years ago on mankind's greatest fear. And it aggregated the findings of 330 different studies. And uh, they identified that mankind's greatest fear is the future because with it comes uncertainty. And as a species, we are very conservative. We don't like change. If you go to a Chinese restaurant and there are 400 things on the menu, chances are, because of the tyranny of choice, you'll just revert back to what you always order. So whether it's crispy chili beef or I know some type of prawns. And by nature, we don't like that uncertainty. So tell me this then, um, what catalyzed the desire of the leadership of the city to say, right, we're throwing our hat in the ring and this is how we're going to spend a quarter of a billion kroner on innovation. Because that takes uh, balls of brass, if you don't mind me saying. Well, it does, definitely. And you're right, because without a, a common sense of, um, uh, or a common understanding within the city of why we're doing it, it doesn't work. Now, the reason the city of Helsinki has decided to do this is because with the current setup, the way we run our cities, actually in all of Sweden, and I would imagine in, in most of the Western world, maybe the whole world, the way we run our cities isn't going to work in the long run. We have um, changing demographics to begin with. We have more children and we have more elderly and the elderly are more expensive. They live longer. They have complex diseases, a lot of needs. And the, the, the sort of working body in the middle is in percentage of the whole population becoming smaller. So you have less people paying taxes, you need to pay for more things. And if you do the math, it's not even a matter of in within 100 years or 50 years. I think for, for many Swedish cities and communes, it's a matter of five to 10 years. It's just not going to work. There's not going to be enough money to go around. So that gives you a few, a few different options. One of them would be, of course, to, to raise taxes without becoming political. That also at some stage will stop. I mean, you know, you can't go above 100 anyway. Another option would be maybe to give your inhabitants less services or, or a lower degree of service. But, you know, who wants to live in a city that, that doesn't sort of fulfill your needs as, as an inhabitant? So that sort of leaves the option of trying to figure out a different way of running your business, adopting a new logic, finding smarter ways, more efficient ways, taking huge steps to make a difference, right? And uh, this, this insight has, has sort of, um, been manifested by politicians and by the, the, the management of the city in this initiative to host a, a smart city expo and, and to use earmarked funding for innovation. So it's, it's sort of about saving the world, really, because even if the city of Helsingborg is a relatively small city, it's large enough to have the same problems as most huge cities around the world. So if we can figure out new ways of, um, for instance, how we, how we govern our city. City governance is one of the big questions that we have to look at when it comes to innovation. And if we can figure out things that, are, that we see and can show make a difference, then we would be helping you know, cities and, and communes all around the world to find new ways of addressing their, their challenges. So this comes 
was out of vision, but but just as much out of a, a very, very, very imminent need to change. So th- this thing raises the obvious question, which is, how are you held accountable? Because oh, that, that must be a point of friction between the people who are saying, well, we're throwing money at this problem and uh, people who've... I'll let you answer the question before I ramble. If you mean... You as in me, myself, or the, the sort of uh, the city? You, you, you and your team. Yeah, exactly. We were lucky because we, we were given the opportunity to work with the um, top leadership of the city from the start. And we um, told them that at any stage of this process and this transformation, we have to be completely transparent. And that transparency is important for a number of reasons. One would be an innovation basically often occurs when a lot of different people with different different parties, with different experiences and different responsibilities come together to look at a need, a problem. So transparency is important from that perspective. But transparency will also be important because the inhabitants of the city and the media are obviously going to want to know, what are we doing with this money? So we're trying to build a, a methods and tools that will allow a sense of transparency so that anybody can look at the sort of portfolio of initiatives we're looking at, what they cost, and what we hope to achieve, how we manage the fail-fast philosophy to make sure we don't waste money on things that obviously aren't working, so that we can show what we achieve and what that what kind of worth that generates. At the same time, there are other manifestations as we go along of what we actually are achieving. For instance, the fact that the portfolio is growing and that the various departments are beginning to work together around problems instead of working within their silos, another problem we we addressed quite early on. And the truth is, to be honest, and this is in no way meant as criticism to the city, it's just an expression of the culture. When we started, there was a very clear idea of what they wanted to accomplish, a higher degree of innovation, but there were no explicit measurable goals. And we brought those in because we felt it is important for the, you know, the reasons I just stated, that, that it's easy to see what's actually happening and changing and what is the value of the initiatives that we're working with. Very interesting. So t- tell me, you say that you've managed to create or break down the silos and get different departments working together. What were the challenges that you faced with that? Well, I'm going to be honest. The, the largest challenge was probably the management. Now, the city of Helsingborg is organized pretty much like a, like a consortium. There's a, a managing director and he has a leadership team and the leadership team is made up, or the management team is made up of the heads of the nine departments. There is a very explicit leadership mandate in that organization. So they work together. They have reoccurring you know, management team meetings and, and, a, and a, a common agenda and so forth. And I think they do that very professionally. But still, the, the nine sort of directors are there representing their various departments. And some of them can be, you know, pretty large, 4,000, 5,000 employees, and some of them will be smaller, maybe just a few hundred. But uh, regardless, they have the sort of the, the business logic of their respective departments is what they bring to the table when they have their management meetings. So we, we tried to work with them around large needs or challenges that exist in the city from the perspective of the inhabitants and try to get them to rally around that. And that was actually quite difficult. And what we've instead found is that if we go down a few levels in the organizations and identify middle managers or just people, project managers or service designers or first line managers who have insights of problems that are not necessarily specific to the one department, but are just general challenges in the city, we can work with those and create a, well, maybe create an initiative where at least one or two or three or four different departments feel that they want to be involved in the solution. To answer your question, the, the biggest challenge was the management. And this is the same management that, that asked us to come along, you know, and, and wanted to have us involved in creating a systematic approach to innovation in a complex organization. I don't know if you've ever read it, Patrick Lencioni's book, Silos, Politics and Turf Wars. Didn't he write something about uh, dysfunctions of a team as well? Yeah, uh, every one of his books is worth a read, but uh, specifically dealing with that issue. And there are a number of other books that if anyone's interested in the subject of innovation, 
essential reading. So Silos, Politics and Turf Wars by Lencioni, uh, Essentialism by Greg McEwen, Range by David Epstein, Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed, Loon Shots by Safi Bacal, and another one that's a bit of an outlier here is Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And those six books will arm you and equip you uh, to deal with many of the challenges that Patrick's been discussing here. Because even though uh, management wants to come up with, uh, wants to innovate, their natural conservatism and uh, how they are measured, how they're being scrutinized, and the pace with which change is occurring, and the disruption that pace creates, uh, that change creates, makes them nervous. So those six books will give you a really good foundation for dealing with the resistance, but also how to create the team and uh, how to ensure that you're getting, you're coming out of your bubble, which was the next thing I wanted to talk about. That diversity of input, how much time did you, uh, do you spend prior to launching an innovation initiative with speaking to users and competitors and other providers to get that big picture so you see the whole picture instead of just a narrow focus? Oh, wow. Uh, well, you see, that varies a lot. And, and um, to put it a little bit in the perspective of Simbori, we're still quite early on in our change process. These, these funds that I told you about, the Airmark Innovation Funds, departments were allowed to use them from the 1st of January of this year. And uh, I came aboard together with my colleague Lisa in August, September of the previous year. So we just had like three or four months to, to sort of get involved in, in setting up a system for, for innovation. And what has actually happened is that most of the departments have been slow in actually starting initiatives that we would call real innovation pilots. And they have been started in a, very, in a lot of different ways. And these various projects, some of them have, are centered around users or, or specific needs. Others are, are, some of them have been started on a technological perspective, like what can we do with AR, VR, MR in a given situation or around a given need? How did you galvanize opinion and ideas from uh, multiple sources in order to ensure that you've got that richness and diversity uh, and not blinkered? Unfortunately, that's not really what has been happening because from the start off, the the nine departments established processes and... and, um, tools and methods to manage sort of amongst one things, how do we get ideas? How do we get people with ideas to get involved and come and tell us what they want to do? But it was all based within the departments. And as I said, one of the challenges was getting initiatives to form outside the departments and to thereby make sure that they weren't addressing the logic existent within the different departments, but instead addressing the logic of overall challenges. There's there's one interesting thing about the city of Helsingborg, and that is that there is a small group of project managers, first-line managers, who are called, the Swedish term is mellanrumsledare. So they, they manage the area between the explicit walls of organizations. So in-between room managers, you could say. They manage the gaps. Exactly. And of course, I mean, that's, that's a made-up role, and they don't have any explicit mandate but they meet every six weeks or so to discuss things that aren't working. And that's actually where we identified the opportunity to formulate explicit needs and problems that should be addressed in an innovation pilot. But then, of course, the ownership becomes unclear. We, as sort of the chief innovation advisors, have to put a lot of energy and effort into trying to get these needs accepted as strategic needs by the nine department heads because they're not explicitly addressing any of their problems. So I'd say that the biggest challenge in in getting in finding needs that can be addressed that will that we believe will create true innovation and that will result in in um, solving problems for for the inhabitants has been in finding a structure that will that will allow these needs to end up in some kind of a, an environment where they can taken taken seriously. 
One of the tools that we use with our clients where we're dealing with ambiguity and we need to um, help them uh, drive change and instead of it just being a talking shop that you're always advancing is a model called RACI, R-A-C-I. And that's responsible, accountable, consulted, informed. One person only is ever responsible for taking a particular action. Now, they may be the same person who is ultimately accountable, but it's their head on the block. Whoever is accountable, uh, so you're ultimately accountable uh, with Lisa for the um, outcomes of the innovation team. Yes. Consulted, you may consult the managers, the nine department heads, and informed, you might inform the managing director, you might inform the media. But by having that very simple structure and always making sure that anyone who is responsible has a clear specific objective to achieve with a clear deadline by when they are committing to achieve it and you negotiate with them when they commit to achieving it. And if necessary, having an interim review point or several interim review points to ensure that progress is always being made and it's not being left at the last minute, then you tend to make much faster progress. And in terms of managing the gaps, in my business, we, when we're helping our clients deal with important and costly sales pursuits, we have a white team and a red team. Uh, the white team is the one that defends the position or defends the opportunity. And the red team's job is to pick holes at it and find the gaps. And that's really powerful because that helps you to get out quickly when you can't win it. And uh, it takes the emotional attachment out because the people who have invested a lot of time and effort in uh, following a pursuit will often fight to keep it in their sales pipeline longer than they should. And whether it be the project pipeline, innovation pipeline, the key is to make sure that emotional attachment is removed because by nature, all of our decisions, well, at least 95% of them are emotionally driven. And if the emotional centers of the brain are damaged, then people can't decide whether they want tea or coffee, whether to wear the white or blue shirt, because all decisions are emotional. And then we find the way to justify it intellectually through evidence gathering. So I suspect a lot of your role actually is being a referee for other people's children. Oh, definitely. And we've spoken a lot about the need to understand the fail fast concept and that one of the biggest challenges is with managers getting involved in, in pursuits is that you know these uh, pursuits become their babies and they become less inclined to kill their own babies. Yeah. I think I can explain how we work if I use an example. So when, uh, when we started here last summer, Helsingborg had already built what they call the first communal accelerator within Sweden. So this is fantastic office space that would make you think of maybe Googleplex or Apple's head office more than a city environment. There were a lot of people working here, say 30 or 40 people, different backgrounds within idea generation, uh, coaching around different types of design processes and sprint processes and so on. So it's a fantastic place to come to. And one of the best stories they had was about a project that they were called um, Liban, which is a, an idea about how to use some technology to make the everyday situation of teachers uh, and the pedagogical staff in preschools more easy and create value for the little infant children and also create some value for the parents, right? So this is this idea. And I don't have to go into detail, just you need to understand that it was very hypothetical and there were some ideas that wanted to be tested. So they, they brought in some people from, the, from a few preschools and they did a few design sprints and it was over in a few weeks and they had this great concept called Liban. There's a movie about it and everybody gets really excited when they talk about it. And after, when we'd been here for about a month or two, we were like, can we see it? Where, where is this thing? And it turned out it was in a shoebox. <laughs> and like, okay, but, and that's it. What now? And people say, yeah, no, we, I mean, we have to do something about that. We, you know, what's the next step? And, and that's actually what, that's more or less how they defined our role. Our role was to figure out, so what do we do with these great ideas? Well, there is a proof of concept that makes sense. And so we devised a setup where, okay, so 
our sort of ecosystem of innovation has to be based on three different wheels. The first wheel is this idea generation wheel, obviously. I mean, you know, we have to figure out a systematic way of working with ideas and we have to have a certain quality in idea, our ideas and we should be using service design and et cetera, et cetera, right? But that's still the easiest part. The hardest part is to take a thing like this live and actually test it in a true environment to see that it actually works the way we thought it would work. And then if it works, then we have to scale it up to all the schools. And that's a huge change initiative. And these things are, are much harder and much less sexy than working with design sprints. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of innovation initiatives within big corporations or in the public sector are far too focused on just ideas, put far too little effort in the difficult work of getting things put in place. Because that's actually the third part of our definition of innovation that I never came to. The first part was, remember, doing things better. The second part was differentiating it from traditional development. And the third part is, it's not an innovation until it is used and creates value. It's just an idea. So what we did then with this Liban thing was we went to the director of that department and we said, listen, you have this great proof of concept that has been developed by, by your staff. You know, uh, Shouldn't we test it in a few schools? And he said, yeah, well, how would we do that? Then we started to talk about different agile setups. And then we said, listen, there was a, one uh, specific individual involved who was very much the driver of the idea. And he's a teacher at one of these preschools. Can't you take him out of his, uh, of his everyday work and, and let him become sort of a product owner? And he was like, no, that can't be done. I mean, you know, he's an important teacher and this, the preschool, we only have this much staff and, you know, that'll cost money. And I said, yes, well, either you do it or we just kill the whole thing. And then it, it turned out that there was a solution for that. And so this guy, he works every Monday. He spends time here at, our, at, at the same office space that I share. And we built a team around him. And we did it very agile. Our definition of agile, and I really believe everybody needs their own. I don't think there is one definition. What we did was we had to identify who needs to be involved in the team uh, so that we can work on the challenges we, we experience. In traditional project management, I feel you set up your risk list and you have all of these dependencies and you have your, your key stakeholders and you try to manage that. And I think that's if it, that can be... One workaround is to not have a risk list and not have a list of key stakeholders and instead get everybody into the team that you need to do what you need to do. And if you can't get them into the team, make sure that you're not dependent on that reality. You have to find a way where you, where you are in control of what you're working on and you are sure that you have the tools and the necessary resources to be able to achieve your results. So we built this team. And we brought in some consultants from an IT consultancy to work with this solution because it's uh, it's sort of, um, there's a certain element of artificial intelligence involved and, and so on. And we got three schools involved and we could start to do A-B testing with the solutions and we could start to measure how much time this, the, the, these little preschool children were using it. And we tried to get parents involved and we could measure whether or not the teachers felt that they had more or less time to do other things, et cetera. After we discovered that it was quite successful and we, we sort of launched, I don't know, say 10, 15 different versions, we were doing this on a two-week basis, you know, uh, deploying new solutions. Now that's uh, 10 schools and we've decided that now that we're beginning to identify that there is a value uh, and we can measure that value, now is the time to make a business case for whether or not to deploy it in all 300 schools. So that's sort of the process. That, that's how we view our challenge. And that's how we've decided to sort of formulate uh, the methods and, and the sort of teams that we want to build. So we call this team an innovation pilot. And that's, that's sort of the middle wheel, right? Sometime before the summer here, we're going to make a decision whether or not to scale this up to all 300 schools. And that's sort of the scaling wheel. And that's a huge wheel. And that's just traditional project management. There's nothing agile about that. Now we have, you know, we've identified what the product is. We've identified how it works. We've identified the values, the value it creates. We know what it costs. And now we're going to set up some kind of initiative to get it, you know, deployed into all 300 or the remaining 290 schools. That must be incredibly exciting. It is. It is. And you know what is most exciting is the energy and the... the excitement that gets developed within the teams and within the different schools that are involved in, in testing the different versions and the different functionality. So and how are the kids reacting? 
unbelievable. I mean, you know, they're they're um, in the beginning they were shouting at it and and you know pushing all the buttons at the same time and it well, basically what it does just to give you an idea it, it what this preschool teacher wanted to create was a solution that would let the the little kids get access to information that they otherwise would have to keep pestering the teachers about, which aren't really sort of high quality things. It would be like, for instance, when they get dressed to go out into the yard, what should they put on? Now you have 25 little kids running to different teachers asking the same question over and over again, but they could just as well get that information from this sort of robot on the wall, right? Yeah. So these were the first things that they taught it to do, to tell the kids what to put on. So it's cold outside, you have to wear, you know, a sweater and a rain jacket or whatever. Other questions would be, what's for lunch today? So they, we had to build a uh, functionality that would go into the, um, to the restaurant and find out what, what that lunch was. And then we had to use IE actually to translate it into something that the kids would understand if that was going to happen automatically. Other questions would be, for instance, what time is it? Or, and things we're looking at that haven't yet happened is, is for instance, what time is, is my mommy coming to pick me up? Or is mommy or daddy or granny coming to pick me up? Things like that. And these are things we're sort of experimenting with as concepts because they all of a sudden bring us into quite complicated uh, legal issues around GDPR and, and so on, right? This whole trip is, there's nobody, nobody knows where it's going to go. It could become anything. And from the beginning, we actually didn't even know if it would be accepted within the schools or if the kids would be interested in using it. So that, that's sort of this agile testing setup where we're with very short um, and iterative work methods. We sort of test new things on a weekly basis to figure out which way to go. And you know what we've discovered now is that the situation in a preschool is not all that different from the situation in certain old age homes where, you know, as it unfortunately is for us grown-ups and, you know, those of us who are 50 or 60 and above, getting closer to that time of our life when we'll have more in common with the people we were when we were babies than as grown-ups. And a lot of the questions that, that a person with, say, dementia asks are quite similar to the questions that a, um, a preschool child would, would ask. And it, it takes a, a huge amount of energy from the staff to keep running to answer simple questions like, has my son been here yet today? Or what's for lunch? Or and we're not saying that this robot is going to replace the quality of true interaction. That's not what it's about. It's actually about creating more time for the quality interactions. By Well, I was going to ask about that. Has it improved the quality of the questions coming from the children so that the teachers are spending their time on higher value activity? Yes, the teachers do make that um, uh, assessment. They do feel that they are spending less time on repetitive, non low-value questions and more time on, on the, the quality issues. We're still sort of testing this, and we're still in, in a, we're still running this as an innovation pilot. What we did when we tested this at an old age, at an old age home, was uh, one one factor that played in is that this robot can speak lots of different languages, right? Oh wow! And uh, as in many many places of the world, there is a challenge with with immigration where people, especially elder people, just have a hard time making themselves understood and understanding what is being said to them. And there was this wonderful old lady who, I'm not sure how long she'd, she'd been in, um, in Sweden, but she spoke no Swedish, no English, uh, just Arabic. And she cried when she spoke to this robot because it was the first time she knew in advance what she was getting for lunch. And this is just one, one very simple situation with one person. But, you know, it just shows you... Nobody would have thought of testing a thing like this if we hadn't first started to build around the, the inspiration and drive of this young teacher who was interested in looking at the situation within the, in the preschool. And it's this type of innovation that we're, that we're looking for, you know, these unexpected solutions in situations where sometimes not even the actual need has been identified. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people knew that this poor lady was sort of um, not very integrated into her immediate surroundings. But it wasn't just, you know, taken seriously. And because I guess people didn't really know how to solve it. But it, but it just goes to show how, how um, starting these pilots and putting them in movement, that's where the true innovation happens. Brings me back to the, one of the, what I think is, is usually a misconception around working with ideas and, and, in, and innovation. The biggest challenge is getting the incumbent way of seeing the world to change. 
getting ideas on, on, on flip charts or on post-it notes or in a database, that's easy. And there are lots of ideas. And most of them are probably not worth the paper they're written on. But the point is, if you test all of them, you create a culture of curiosity and agility where it's okay to test things because it's okay to be wrong. Because if we're wrong 95 times, the five times we're right will create incredible value, right? Very interesting. What are the three questions that people should ask, but they don't when it comes to innovation? I think I have this hang up around uh, how agility is sometimes misunderstood, especially by those who don't understand it or haven't been involved. And I wish that people would ask, so agility is a new term, but hasn't it existed for a long time? And of course it has. And uh, I'm not all that interested in, in wars and, and uh, the military realm, but I understand that it, within different sort of strategies and tactics for, for, for wars and fighting, agility has been pretty much a concept ever since you know, thousands of years. And actually, one of, one of Sweden's most inspirational transformational leaders, Ingvar Kamprad, as I'm sure you know, started uh, IKEA as, as a young man you know, with his bare hands, selling match, uh, matchsticks, basically. And, and he was highly agile in, in his outlook on business. In fact, when IKEA started to work more agile, especially around digital and IT issues a few years back, they used the, 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 the writings and quotes from Ingvar Kampert from the 70s to connect to the Agile Manifesto. I mean, Kamprad said things like, you know, simplicity is a virtue, is a virtue, and done is better than perfect. I actually have one quote that I like especially. Exaggerated planning is the most common cause of corporate death. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Essentialism, the book I mentioned earlier, the, the basic principle is do less but better on purpose and mean it. And I think if you run your business, you run your organization uh, with that in mind, then what you realize is that perfection is the enemy of the good. And it's important to translate those ideas into something that you can actually apply and makes a difference to people's lives. So tell me, do you have another question that they should ask, but they don't? I feel that in general management terms and when it comes to agility and building teams and being in, building autonomous teams, we often use teams as a metaphor and people start to think of soccer or football or basketball or whatever team sport they've oriented themselves. And I wish that people would ask the question more often, how are teams a poor metaphor when it comes to business? Because I think it's, it's so easy to, to get people engaged in a discussion about how we're going to be a team and they think of themselves as being on the same playing field, you know, and, and yeah, we have a common goal and yeah, we have to work together and we have to trust each other and, and so on, you know. But they don't talk about the things that never happen in business that actually happen in well-functioning teams. For instance, just one simple thing. If everybody's on the same playing field, you know, apart from the obvious thing that we're all playing the same sport, which I think can be a huge problem in, in a complex organization with, say, nine departments, because we actually were playing nine different sports. But one of the things I wish people would think about is you can see everything that goes on on a field, regardless of if you're the goalie or the striker or a midfielder or the opponent, everybody sees the same thing, right? That never happens in business. How do you create that in business? And we don't even think about it. In fact, people tend to think, oh, Every second Monday, we have to go to the department meeting and blah, 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 and listen to people talk about stuff. Yes, of course, because that's the only chance you have of understanding what's going on on your playing field. But we tend not to think of that as something that's important, and we don't even think of it as a problem. We just like to go back to our silos, you know, and sit there and do whatever we're doing. You know, I'm the goldie. I, all I care about is, is this area between the posts. But that's not how it works in reality. And I feel that sometimes... We use metaphors to simplify when we should be using them to consider how our simplification is um, blindsiding us. In fact, I, one of my favorite books of all time from management is something they forced us to read at university. And that's, I don't know if you know this, Gareth Morgan wrote a book called Images of Organizations. And it's, it's, it's just a book that describes how we use metaphors to describe organizations, because organizations are very abstract things, right? The effect of using these metaphors is that we only see what that what any what any one metaphor describes. The most obvious one 
is sort of the metaphor of an organization as a machine, right? So we have different moving parts and they interact and they create efficiency and reliability and so on. But that, that only shows you one side of how things work. I mean, you know, you have you read Gareth Morgan? Uh, no, what was the name of the book again? Images of Organizations. I mean, this is like 90s, uh, something like that. And he, he, you know, he, there's a chapter on, uh, well, you know, there's the obvious ones, images as an organism or images as a brain or culture as an image for an organization. But there's also really fascinating ones like psychic prison or political systems or instruments of domination. Because an organization can be any one of these things and actually is, is them all at once, depending on your perspective or whether they're in change or not in change or facing a challenge or not. Or I wish people would ask that question more often. What are we not seeing because of the, the, our choice of rhetorics and words and models? That's what Rebel Ideas is about by Matthew Syed. He gives a really fascinating example. If you give an American audience a fish tank, they will typically describe the fish swimming in it. If you give a Japanese audience the same fish tank, they will describe the aesthetics of the tank, the gravel, the bubbles, the, uh, the, pot, um, the seaweed. And if you don't have both of them, you don't get the whole picture. And I think that's one of the really interesting things that's come out of this conversation is the importance of having different perspectives and looking in the gaps. Tell me this then. How much of your time is spent coaching your team? So I'm really curious about that. Good question. We're a bit at a, um, we're entering a new stage now in our work. We spent the first nine, 10 months setting up sort of a common understanding within management of what we mean by innovation and how we're going to work with it, et cetera. Now we're actually working with the different teams that exist here at uh, Helsingborg Works is the name of this um, communal accelerator, as we like to call it. There are people here who we call entrepreneurs, actually, who are going back to this sort of idea of the agile uh, innovation pilot team. The idea bearer, the person who, who brings the initiative to the table, such as this young teacher from a preschool, they have great insights into the problems and they have ideas that they want to test. But they're not used to being project managers or product owners or scrum masters or they don't know how to set up teams. So we have a role that we call an entrepreneur who is a person who is an ex-product owner or scrum master or done some kind of innovation work who's used to setting up teams, trying to work out the, the creases in the paper, trying to, 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 to figure out the way to move forward, you know? So we're just bringing, we have a few on board and we're bringing a few more on board. And basically what we need to do is to get them involved in the right initiatives. So they're sort of self-running agents of change then we have the, the, the different teams that work with design sprints and coaching, also quite senior. And we're sort of moving our focus from working with the, the, the management teams of the city to looking at how we can organize ourselves within this um, organization to better be able to help the departments fulfill their goals. Because building a thing, you know, an organization like this in, in a city or in a public environment has taken some time and energy, and this organization has spent a lot of time being quite introspective. But I think that is a stage you have to pass through when you're building something from scratch, right? Who are we? How do we work? What tools do we use? A lot of sort of questions about us here and less questions about them out there that we exist for. And now we're making that transformation. So you can say there's a shift in attention from the overall challenge of the departments to the actual organization here that is, has been put into place to m help drive, manage, and um, coordinate all the different innovation pilots and, and, uh, and those projects. Patrick, we've got to wrap up now. So a couple of uh, very quick questions. First question is, if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot 23-year-old Patrick who knew everything uh, was invincible and immortal, what advice would you give him? What would you whisper in his ear? Yeah, you know what I would do? Uh, when I was around 27 or 28, at the end of my university um, studies, I had the opportunity to go a management course where we got actual feedback on our personality and how we were understood by the people around us, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I had this idea that I was really charming, funny, likable, <laughs> smart. And I realized then, for the first time in my life, that I was, yeah, sometimes funny, mostly just a pain in the ass, took far too much space, was far too extrovert, never left room for anybody else, always trying to solve everybody else's problem, just basically not a very likable guy. And, you know, I mean, I was, you know, bearing on 30. And um, if I had known that when I was 23, if somebody had coached me in understanding this, you have sort of the, the gift of, of, of speaking and, and a relatively quick mind. Learn to use that when it is needed. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, somebody should have said, learn to shut the fuck up. Seriously, I'm sorry about the... the yeah, yeah, that's all right. And on the other hand, maybe I wouldn't have understood. Maybe I wouldn't have accepted those insights. But I, I remember when, I, when that was made clear to me at the age of 27, I looked back at so much wasted time where maybe what I do naturally, you know, create a certain sense of energy or, or excitement could have created much more value if I had learned to restrain myself. And constraint is one of the most useful skills that I've learned. It's really hard. Subsuming your ego, being vulnerable enough to ask for help. Um, and recognizing that you don't have all the answers and learning to shut the fuck up mm. is really critically important. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes left. I'd, I'd love to ask you this question then. What are you struggling with personally? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Well, one thing I am wrestling with, and I think this is probably a general challenge in, in management, some leaders accomplish their goals by just walking over any obstacle, right? And that makes them good leaders, at least if that's what you need. Other leaders sort of navigate and, and you know, are more diplomatic. I mean, I do have a sense of, of accomplishment and getting things done and, and creating energy, but I, I tend to sort of be careful not to step on other people and, and try to not just knock down obstacles, understand them and try to move, you know. And when I end up in situations when I work with other leaders who are much more like a bulldog, I find myself in a very difficult situation because, and I'm not talking about necessarily my boss, I'm just talking about other managers in my environment that I, that I need to work with. And I can, be, I can be incredibly inspired by their drive and their focus, but I can also feel that some of the leftovers, some of the things left lying around after they move through new territory, I feel sort of disturbed about that. And I, I have a hard time understanding how to how to work with them in a way so that I feel that my sense of integrity and, uh, and empathy can be taken care of while not becoming a problem for this really driven manager. There's a model that was developed called the winner's triangle. And it's the antithesis to the drama that you're describing. So the drama triangle has three positions of victim, persecutor, and rescuer. And the winner's triangle is vulnerable, nurturing and empathic, and assertive. And Bruce Lee was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And uh, his advice was be somewhere else. The winner's triangle is somewhere else. And if you operate from there, and we can talk about this another time, then it's incredibly powerful because what it does, it's incredibly disarming. And where you have someone who's like a panzer tank going through a Belgian village in 1939, what you do is you take the, uh, the force out of their assault. And because you're not where they expect you to be, then it destabilizes their use of persecution, which is bullying or brutalizing or punishing. And it takes their ego out of the frame as well. Ego thrives on drama. So unfortunately, we've got to wrap up now. But Patrick, this has been incredibly interesting, and I would love to do this again if you're up for it. Thank you. I, I must say it's been incredibly hard because the, the, sort of the, during the course of our discussion, we've, we've touched on subjects that I actually haven't spent time formulating a, a sort of a structure around the, what we're actually doing. And I guess that's, that goes to say a lot about what we're doing here at the City of Helsingborg. We're sort of learning as we go along. And I mean, that is 
it's true to the innovative mindset and, and also to the agile mindset. I mean, we're, we're, we're making things up, but we're also trying to learn and understand what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes that means you, you, you test things faster than you actually have time to understand why they failed. In fact, I started off by telling you that I failed at a one-year job I had at a, at a bank. And, and I think it's actually taken me quite some time to understand exactly what I did wrong. There were some things I couldn't have, you know, done better, but there were definitely things I should have reacted to differently and, and, and structured differently and addressed differently. And, and it's actually taken me quite some time to be able to put that into perspective and create sort of structured learning around it. Excellent. Patrick, thank you for being so open. How can people get hold of you? Uh, well, look me up on LinkedIn. And, you know, be, even though I'm Swedish, I spell Patrick with a CK. And a Lindquist, L-I-N-D-Q-V-I-S-T. Look me up there. I'm happy to talk about anything when it comes to innovation in, in complex environments, agility, agile leadership. You know, it's, the irony of the fact is I've never actually worked in an agile project. Uh, I've been on steering committees of, of agile projects. And even that is, is a bit of a strange thing because they're not supposed to be steering committees, right? But, uh, but I'm very interested in, in the, what happens when big organizations try to become more agile in their, in their organizations. Excellent. Patrick Lindquist, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment and share and please subscribe to the podcast and make sure you tell your friends about it. And if you'd like to be a guest or you think that you know somebody who would be a great guest, then please get in touch at mcauchi at sandler.com. And this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. Happy selling, stay safe, and get in touch. Thank you.